Today's sermon text is Luke 5:33 through 6:11. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 860. Hear the word of the Lord. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Good morning. Would you pray with me as we turn now to God's Word? Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning, even in the receiving and hearing of this Word, to not be merely walking through another religious ritual. We ask that as we sing, as we pray, and as I preach, and as we hear, that all of this would be done for the glory and honor of your Son, Jesus. And so now, Lord, would you make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I played high school football with a few guys who uh, who are really good football players who went on to play 
Division One college football, their summers and my summers looked very different. Mine were just kind of hanging around Birmingham. Theirs were going to different football camps at Michigan and Tennessee and some other big name schools. And I, I forget which friend it was that told me the story, but there was one who, who came back and in the fall we were just talking about uh, this one camp he went to and some advice that one of the coaches gave to him and to all the other recruits who were there with him that morning. Uh, the, this, this football coach said, boys, it's important that you get religion. Now, I don't care. I don't really care what kind of religion. I don't care how much. You just got to get religion. Something. It'll build character for you. Now, is I, I can. there's a sense of me that I can understand that sentiment. Right? If you're a football coach, you, you're wanting everything, kind of everything that helps you get a player on the field on Saturday is your friend, I suppose. And so you think... I just need somebody, some sort of moral code, some sort of religious practices. If, if these guys kind of buy into that, it'll help me. Doesn't matter what, as long as it's some of the right kinds of things that these boys are doing on a weekly or at least some sort of basis. But is that kind of sentiment right? Like as Christians, would we say that that is on the right, right path? If somebody tells you that they have uh, that old time religion, but they don't go on to tell you the content of that religion. Is that okay? Is that enough to be, to say like, well, we're, we're good. You've got religion. You're, you're good. Uh, for you or for me, even this morning, if we do enough of the religious kinds of things, if we obey some religious rules, even if they're the Christian kinds of rules, the Christian kinds of things that we do, and maybe even if you enjoy those kinds of things, is that enough? Would that be good enough? I think that's the kind of question that we're going to be spending our time together looking at in these three stories that you heard Joe read for us. They all share some similarities in, in the way they go together. The subject matter may be slightly different, but, but they all have the same kind of thing. There's these people... Pharisees or a crowd who begin with this accusatory kind of stance against Jesus. There is something about Jesus that they look at and they find irreligious and inappropriate even. And so they, they actually move to wanting to catch and trap Jesus. But in all three of these stories, Jesus hears their complaint or sees kind of what they're doing. And he's going to respond with a question. And so that's, that's how we're going to organize our time. I'm not quoting the question exactly on your outline that you got in your note sheet, but I'm, I'm just kind of summarizing three questions that Jesus asks religious people. And for this, that's us in lots of ways. Three questions that Jesus asks of religious people. I've been praying this week that the Lord would use this text to help us delight in Christ, that we'd find joy in him. And that if there's anything in us that we kind of go through this text and feel self-righteous religious duty, that that kind of thing would be put to death, conformed to Christ. Now, last week, if you were here with us, you saw like Jesus has a lot of popularity, right? That he, he is a really popular dude. He's been healing, he's been teaching, and all sorts of people have been coming to him, but he doesn't have universal acclaim. 
Right, so, so last week there was this, this paralytic who came to him, a man who could not walk. And there are crowds, so many crowds around him that they have to lower him through the roof. But when Jesus tells this man that his sins are forgiven, then there's this group, the Pharisees and the scribes, who look at him and say, that's blasphemy. Like, that's setting yourself on equal with God. And that, that was kind of the beginning that you see these three stories are going to carry on of opposition against Jesus. And it, it didn't just, it wasn't just there in this healing of the paralytic. The next story where they go to how, the house of Levi, a tax collector, a guy who would have been hated by all the religious people around him. And he throws a great feast. He invites all his tax collector buddies. And the Pharisees look and say, what are you doing? You're a rabbi. You're going to eat with that rabble? And then what does Jesus tell them? Remember Jesus' answer to them? Let's go to the verse right before what Joe read this morning. Luke 4, 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that kind of thread, that's going to be part of the thread you're going to hear over and over. A group who think themselves righteous. And for whom Jesus has very little other than condemnation to say. That's the context that we begin our passage this morning. You can, you can just imagine the scene. Think about even that feast at Levi's house. You're one of the participants. You're, you're there with your buddies. You've been invited to this great banqueting house. You look around and see the disciples of Jesus and they're, they're eating, they're drinking, they're enjoying themselves and it strikes you suddenly, you know, that's, that's really different than the other groups of religious disciples I've seen. And so you and your friends, you pipe up and ask. This is verse 33. They said to him, to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Uh, now, kids, this is a word that you may not know that much, so I'd like at least one of you, if you can help me define it. What does it mean to fast? Does anybody know what it means to fast? I've got two answers. I'm just seeing if there's any, the, the, the usual gang. Jackson, go for it. Just, I think I have that word for word. Perfect, Jackson. When you don't eat food for like a certain period of time. Right, and, and it's not just like, that's, that's just what it means to fast and not eat food for a certain period of time. And in the Old Testament, there were a few reasons why people fast. It wasn't just to lose weight. There were some religious kinds of reasons. So, uh, it was commanded of all the people once a year at the Day of Atonement that they would fast. But then you see throughout the Old Testament other times. So if you were lamenting something that was really sorrowful, you would fast. You would refrain from eating out of sorrow. Or, or frequently, if there was something that you wanted, you were desperate for God to move in a particular way. You would fast. You would cease from eating as showing a way of desperation. I think that's why it's linked here with praying, that the disciples of John are fasting and praying. They long for something to come. But by the time of the Pharisees, you can go read this over in Luke 18, the Pharisees had turned this, this kind of desperate act into a religious routine. So, so Luke 18, there's this Pharisee and a tax collector, and the Pharisee says, I thank you, God, that I fast twice a week. And that was normal for Pharisees, to fast twice a week. And, and the crowd, they begin to, to wonder, 
Uh, I've seen all of these religious people, and their life looks like fasting twice a week. And you, Jesus, and your disciples, you claim to be religious. You kind of have the look of religion about you, but you do this very differently. What gives? Why don't you fast? And Jesus answers them by asking them, do you know what time it is? Have you forgotten the time? That's what he's saying in verse 34. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. In other words, they've, they've misunderstood what time it is. There's nothing wrong with fasting in and of itself. And during times of deep sorrow and longing, it was appropriate. It was the right thing to do. Like you don't go to your friend's wedding and tell all the guests, you see that beautiful cake? Don't touch it. It's wrong. No, it's party time. It's, it's time to feast. The bridegroom is here. They've waited for this. And he's come. The appropriate thing to do, the right thing to do is feast. And Jesus says, that time has come. It's feasting time, not fasting time. Uh, The Old Testament, the the prophet Isaiah had said that the maker, your maker, Isaiah 54, 5, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And Jesus is saying, I'm that one. I'm the maker, the husband The bridegroom that Israel had fasted and prayed for and longed for, I'm here now. And now is the time to feast. You've misunderstood the time. And that kind of misunderstanding was a symptom. That understanding about fasting and feasting, that was a symptom of a deeper misunderstanding. Which is what leads Jesus to these two short parables starting in verse 36. So Jesus tells these two Parables. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Uh, if you've seen me, uh, we, I've talked about this probably from here, and if you know me, I, I have an annual Christmas tradition. It is to go to the Ryman and hear Andrew Peterson in concert and see his concert, Behold the Lamb of God. It's one of my favorite things to do every year. And I, I love uh, the thing I go and do, like at intermission, I, I hit the door because I want to buy a t-shirt. I don't know why, I just love the Andrew Peterson Ryman Behold the Lamb of God t-shirts. You have seen me. I have five of them. I could wear one every day of the week. But my oldest one does have a hole, and I'm not going to tell you where because I still wear it. The problem, if, if I came back this year, and I did get a t-shirt, and I said, you know what? I'd, I'm just going to cut up this new t-shirt and put a patch on it. I just showed you where the hole is. If I, I'm going to show you where. I'm going to put a patch on it. That, that's foolishness. I just ruined the new thing, and the old one doesn't match. It makes no sense to try to mesh those two. Uh, these, this wineskin story that Jesus is telling, a wineskin was made out of animal skin or leather that was meant to hold wine. And you had to have a, a new wineskin because new leather, new animal skin, had some stretchiness, some elasticity to it. 
And that was important because new wine was still fermenting. It was still creating gas and then expanding inside that skin. And if you put it inside a new wineskin, that's okay. It can hold that. It can expand. But if you take like an old one that, that's already lost all of its stretchiness and you put new wine in there, eventually it's going to burst and you ruin both the new and the old. The new wine rolls out and the old wineskin is no good. Now, why does Jesus tell these two parables? Why, why put them here? What, how does that fit with what he's saying about the bridegroom? It's the same story. The same point is the same. You've misunderstood the time. You've got the time all wrong. The coming of Jesus, he is saying, has ushered in a new era. Something new is happening. And the Pharisees have all of these old patterns of worship and religious devotion that they know and that they have clung to. And they are doing everything in their power. Their question about fasting and even the questions to come are about trying to put Jesus into that mold to make him conform to exactly what they are doing. But Jesus says he's not come just to bring more of the same. You you heard Charlie read it earlier that there was this promise of a new covenant coming. A, A day when God would write the law in their hearts, when he would pour out his spirit when things would be made new and jesus saying it's now it's that new day you can't simply conform me and conform this new into all of the old you're trying to do you need to do the opposite flip that on its head and conform your life and even your religious devotion to me i set the mold now now, there are some serious cautions to take heart of, to, to listen to, for us even. And one of those cautions is there in verse 39. It, it can come across almost counterintuitive, like Jesus is trying to do something very different in verse 39. He says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. I, I think there he's, he's condemning the religious leaders. He, he's saying they have drunk deeply from the old wine of their rules and customs. And when they are confronted with Jesus, they are satisfied with what they have. No thanks. I've got my kind of things that I do. All, All my religious stuff is buttoned up really well. And I don't really want you to mess with that. They had lost all taste for the new covenant that Jesus was bringing, that the Old Testament was pointing to. That warning for us then is, is this, that religious devotion, religious devotion without Jesus can deaden us to our need for Jesus. Religious devotion that doesn't have at its bedrock Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation, can actually deaden us to our need for Jesus. Uh, you may have had experiences like this. I remember talking to a teacher who was trying to share the gospel with, with a, a Hindu, someone coming from a Hindu background. And, and it, was, it was so difficult because this Hindu friend was extremely religious. Like she, she had statues in her house that she would pray to on a regular basis. And she was very happy after conversation with this teacher of mine to go buy a statue of Jesus and put it up on the mantle beside Krishna or Vishnu. 
But but then once you start saying something like, hey, Jesus says that he's not one of the gods, but he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. He is the God. That that was that was not well received. She was very happy with the old wineskin that she had. She didn't really want to trade that for something new. And that goes beyond just other religious backgrounds. Maybe it's easy to see there, but you can you can think about it in even like non-religious kind of writings that you find today. There's uh, some popular authors, guys like Jordan Peterson, Ryan Holiday, who, who they pull on Jesus as somebody who's very inspiring. Like, it, and, and don't get me wrong, there can be helpful things in their writing, but what they admire about Jesus is how he brings order in, from chaos. Or he does hard things and inspires us to do hard things. But then if you say, what about him as the risen and reigning Lord of all creation? The one who calls you to bow before him, not just to inspire you to a better life. Well, then, then they don't have use for that. There's no place for that kind, for a God who claimed to rise from the dead. That part of Jesus just doesn't fit into their old garment, and so they reject it. And friends, ultimately, this is true of all of us. Like all of the religious devotion, even if it's apart from Christ, even the things that you may love that you grew up with, if it is confronted with Jesus and his word, I pray that many of those things, especially if the, you've grown up in a church preaching the gospel with Jesus at its heart, you may find that those are pointing you rightly to him. But if you find that you really like the religious act and you find Jesus confront that act, friend, conform your devotion to Jesus. Base your life and everything we do here on a Sunday and everything you go home to do and worship him on him, not the other way around. You conform your ideas to him. Now, there, there is another question that maybe we should ask, and, and this is thinking through what Jesus says about feasting and fasting and what time it is. Because we can read this and, and ask ourselves, what time is it today? Is it a time for feasting? Time of fasting. The, the unsatisfying answer, perhaps, is yes. Yes. Both. We, we live in this already and not yet kind of time. We have seen Christ has come. He has poured out his spirit on his people. He tells us, brothers and sisters, this meeting that we are having right now, God himself tells us that the bridegroom is pleased to be present among us. We can sing things like, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. We can enjoy this. It is a time for feasting in Christ that we've seen him. And, and yet, we are like a betrothed bride who's not quite to the wedding day and to the wedding feast yet. And so there are days when we know that all things are not made new, when the bridegroom is not physically among us longer. When we feel the pains of longing, the pains of sorrow and sickness that come with being separated from the one our heart longs for. And so we see that we are in days of fasting at times too. There will be Sundays, there will be times when you come in here and you will. You will sing at the top 
of your lungs. Christ is my hope in life and death. I glory and rejoice in him. You'll, you'll want to feast on that. And the, the person beside you, or maybe even yourself, by the time we get to the next song, you may barely be croaking out, Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when my sorrows rise. And that, that is the way and the place in which we live. Ours is a time of feasting and of fasting, of walking with limps, walking with sorrows and sadness, but looking forward with confidence, knowing that one day, there is a day when we will feast and weep no more. We need to know the time, know what time it is. Not put, we need to put new wine into fresh wineskins. Conform our religious observance to Christ, not the other way around. And for these religiously observant Jews, what that meant for them is that they were to have a new understanding. Like their, their fasting was to be changed in light of Jesus being among them. But, but fasting, fasting was like a, just a really small part of religious identity. It was a pretty small thing in who they were as a people. It paled in comparison to the importance of something like the Sabbath, which is where the controversy moves in the next two stories. So, so look with me at chapter 6, verse 1. Things move on, and on a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, from, from this kind of distance, we can look at this and crinkle our nose. That seems so insignificant. But, but for a religiously observant Jew, keeping the Sabbath was not one of the small things on the edge of who you were. Your entire community organized its time and calendar and days and celebrations and holidays around these days, around Sabbath days. And the command was given in Exodus 20. It was part of like your constitution. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, God forbade work on the Sabbath and reminded them to rest. You have that there on your text. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work. On the seventh, seventh, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now that's, that's a big principle, right? No work on the Sabbath. But there's not a lot of definition to that. What, what constitutes work? What is work that I do? If I do this thing, is it work? If I do that thing, am I resting? How do I determine? And so over time, Jewish tradition had tried to answer almost every conceivable question as to what made work. And for Jesus and his disciples, it looks like even though they have not broken any specific command... They have broken one of these traditions around the keeping of the Sabbath. They've threshed grain. They've used their hands and they've rubbed some together and they would call that work. They've done what the Pharisees would say is unlawful on the Sabbath. And here, Jesus' question, his answer to them is another question. The question now is this, who's in charge? Who's in charge around here? He starts with this historical analogy. Look there in verse 3. He uses the life of David to talk about this. Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? Uh, If you were back with us in the fall, 
we preach through First Samuel. This is a, this is like a deep track reach. This is this is not David and Goliath. This is one of those kind of buried in First Samuel. But in First Samuel twenty one, David realizes and knows that King Saul is out to kill him, so he flees from Saul and he goes to the city of Nob and he meets the priest Ahimelech. He's got no provisions, no food for his army. And he says, give me something to eat to Ahimelech. And all Ahimelech has is this bread of the presence. It's this holy bread that's meant for the priest and the priest alone. And it's a difficult choice, but, but Ahimelech does the right thing. David is the anointed king. And he's in great need. And because of that, because of his need, and because this is the king... Ahimelech gives him the bread, and he is rightfully able to eat from it. And now Jesus says that same kind of authority, that same kind of thing where this thing that was maybe not thought to be the right thing was overturned, it's, I have that kind of authority too. Right? That's what he says in verse 5. He says to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has the same kind of authority, only infinitely greater. He brings it out even in that title, the Son of Man. We're preaching through Daniel as well. We've not gotten to Daniel 7, but in Daniel 7, there's this image of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with glory. And all authority over all the nations, over all creation, is given to him. And Jesus is plucking that and saying, Son of Man, not just, not just to refer to himself, though he is doing that. He's saying, I'm that guy. I'm the one who has authority over, over everything. He's very clear. The Sabbath law, that comes under me, not over me. I'm the one over the Sabbath. And that statement is massively important. It, we'll see things like this. We've already seen some things like this throughout the book of Luke. We'll see more of them to come saying that all of the Old Testament is meant to point us to Jesus. And, and that, that seems like really true. A lot of you know your Bibles really well. And if I said, hey, where in the Old Testament uh, could you go find Jesus? Not, not the name, but what, what it's pointing to. A lot of us would turn someplace like Isaiah 53, right? the suffering servant who suffers in our place. We'd say that's, that's pointing to him. It's painting the picture that he is the suffering servant. Uh, maybe you'd go to the life of David. We walked through that and saw so many times how David is pointing us to a Messiah to come, a king to come. But here Jesus is saying it's not just the prophets. It's not just the life of the kings, the history books. It's also the law itself that is pointing to me. The law and the Sabbath was meant to point to the blessing of rest and that's important. It was created to be a blessing and not a burden. It was created to bless God's people. And here, all of these people, the Pharisees, had turned it from that blessing into a law of works. And that gift of grace, the gift of rest, is meant to point us to the King who brings rest. The Lord of the Sabbath himself. So resting on the Sabbath day was a weekly reminder. Every week they had to be told, they were told, you can rely on God to provide what you need. You don't have to work this day. God will provide. They were told in the Sabbath, you keep working yourself to death. You're not going to make yourself right with this God. 
It is right to stop and see him doing what he needs. And that's what we find in Christ as well. We find a constant reminder that he has provided for us. As we rest in him, we see we cannot do enough works. We, we rest in Christ. Uh, Pastor Thabiti Anwabila, he, he shows this paragraph. Here's in your notes if you want to follow along of how the Bible picks up on this and shows how it points us. The rest that Christ brings is better. The writer of Hebrews tells us the real Sabbath is first ceasing from working to earn righteousness with God and second by faith in Christ entering the rest that Jesus gives. The Sabbath, like all the law, prophesies about the coming of Christ and a coming rest. That rest is not merely the seventh day, but eternity. And we who believe have rested from our war with sin and have entered the rest Christ purchased by his blood. In that rest, we flourish without effort. This is the true Sabbath, and all who believe in Christ live in it. Friends, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would, I would love, I'd be happy to go to lunch with you after this service and talk about that paragraph. I, I think that it is vital for us to see all of the scripture pointing us to Christ. And if you don't want to come to lunch with me, that's fine. I get it. That may be weird. But, but just know, week after week after week, part of what we want to point you to is that Jesus is Lord. And that you're striving to be made right with him. You thinking that if you come here... And if you just do the right combination of religious things, that is not restful. That is exhausting. And Christ in the cross has done what is necessary to give you rest, to purchase for yourself, for himself, a bride, one who would be with him forever. He has done everything necessary at the cross to purchase rest for all who would turn to him. And that's part of the good news that we want to pronounce every week. So when Jesus says this little phrase that he, the son of man, is Lord of the Sabbath, he's showing us, I'm the one who's completing this. I'm the one the Sabbath was pointed to. I'm the one over the Sabbath. I'm bringing the day of rest for God's people. Now, the, I think it's safe to say the Pharisees did not accept that. They did not, they were not satisfied with that answer from Jesus because the very next story is them trying to catch Jesus and Sabbath breaking again. And here the story turns much, much darker and much more sinister. Uh, look with me at verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. This, this is the capstone project. This is where you have seen how perverse the Pharisees have taken the law of God and utterly twisted it. Uh, this, this man with a withered hand represented to the Pharisees an opportunity. And their greatest desire was to catch Jesus now. Right, even at the very end, they're looking at this. They're here so that they might find a reason to accuse him. 
Now, the Pharisees would allow somebody to be healed. They would allow work if the requirement was you're saving a life. Like, absolutely, only way to save this life is to do this thing. They would allow an exception for work on the Sabbath. But a man with a withered hand, something he's had for a long time, that's, that's not that's not life-threatening. Why not just wait? Don't, don't heal today. Just wait for another day. But I want you to think about how the Pharisees are viewing this man. I, there, is, there is no hint of compassion or mercy. This man is not given humanity or dignity. He, he is a pawn in their game. He, he is just a puppet on a string and trying to catch this blasphemer, Jesus. No, no hint of their care about suffering and sorrow, but Jesus looks and sees something very different. Jesus sees a man who is before him in need of mercy. He's, he's not just like a way to prove religious credentials, but a man who is in great need. He's the reason that Jesus came. Right? Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus responds and asks the synagogue this question, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of these rules? Look at verse 8. He knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do. To Jesus. Friends, who has broken the Sabbath? Who has broken the Sabbath? It is not Jesus. He has spoken a word. That's it. And that was not forbidden. It's not the man with a withered hand. All he did is extend a hand in faith and was made well. Now, here's the tragic irony of this story. The people who broke the Sabbath are the ones who seemed to care about it most. The Pharisees were so consumed with animosity and hatred towards the threat they felt in Jesus that they forgot, friends, they forgot about the purpose of the Sabbath itself to do good. To save life, to show mercy, to give rest. And even when they are confronted in their hypocrisy, they now try to do the exact opposite of what God intended them to be doing on the Sabbath. To do harm, to destroy life, to show hatred, to bring suffering. Everybody on the outside, everybody looking at what is going on, 
Everybody looking at the lives of these Pharisees would say, you know what, they got it. They've got an A plus on their Sabbath obedience. They fulfill like all 39 categories of these laws that we made up of fulfilling Sabbath. They've done it. And Jesus looks them in the eyes and says, you have failed. They have become what the prophets preached against. What Amos said to Israel is now true of these Pharisees. I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise, the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Friends, what a tragedy. These people felt like they had it all right on the outside and they had got it all backwards. They were so devoted to their religious tradition to not messing up that they forgot the purpose that God gave them the law to begin with. What a tragedy. This is how, this is how Tom Schreiner, commentator Tom Schreiner puts it. One can be a religious person and hate Jesus. We can claim to love God, but fail to love the person right in front of us. Friends, we can get lost in questions. I I am. I'm, I'm the person who may feel most at risk in some of these stories. I can get lost in questions about what song should we sing, which ones are right, which melody is best, and forget, lose sight That the purpose of the song is to praise and glorify the Lord. To encourage the saints around us. We can get consumed with thinking about what parts of a building to update. And forget to pour into the lives of the people who will last when this building is in the ground. We can get so caught up in thinking... If somebody else is doing what is right, if the person right in front of us is doing the right thing or not, and totally lose sight of the mercy that God has called us to show that very person. And so do we need to find some religion? Is is that enough? Do we just need to some of the right religious things, some of the right religious duties, some of the right things to say, I hope, I hope now you can see the main point of these. Our religious devotion must, must conform to the statement, the reality. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And not the other way around. We want all of our lives, everything we do here to conform to that statement. What he has called us to and pointed us to, not the other way around. And for many of us, I know that the rhythms and habits of religion, they feel comfortable. 
Right? We've been praying and attending church and singing hymns most of our lives, and there is nothing wrong inherently with that. There is everything good with that if it's pointed in the right direction. But if it's pointed inward, if Jesus comes and says it's pointed not in love towards your brother, not in honor and worship toward the Lord, if Jesus comes to town and tells you that you have started loving the religious game and the forms of what we do, more than you love him as the reigning Lord that we need to take stock. May God spare us. May Jesus move us to conform our lives and our church and our loves to him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have sent the bridegroom. We thank you even for the pain of exposing the ways in which we can be devoted to what looks like good to others and what feels good to us, but what may not actually be pointed at you. And so even as we, as a church, as individuals, as we think about our lives, would you help us shape everything into Christ. Would you remind us over and over again that he is Lord and that we are under him. We pray that you would make it true in our lives and in our worship. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.